A very warm welcome from us at the German Historical Institute, and in particular from me. I'm Christina von Hodenberg. I'm the director of the German Historical Institute. I have the pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, and I'm very pleased to welcome Svenja Goltermann. She's the professor for modern history at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. She has been a professor there since 2012, and before that, she had a number of other positions at German universities where she was teaching and researching. From 2007 to 2011, she was reader for modern history at the University of Freiburg in southwestern Germany. And before that, she was an assistant professor at the University of Bremen. And before that, she did her PhD at the University of Bielefeld, which is also where Svenja and I met because we both did our PhD with the same professor back then in Bielefeld. Svenja has widely published on topics of 19th and 20th century German history, in particular the history of the body, the history of violence and the history of victimhood most recently. All three of her most well-known books have been prize-winning uh, and have won different prizes. The first book was also her PhD thesis. It appeared in 1998 in German as Körper der Nation. And if I translate the title, it would be The Body of the Nation, The Politics of Gymnasts between 1860 and 1890 and their habitus. And this was a book which connected innovative approaches to the history of the body and the history of habitus with the theory of Pierre Bourdieu to the history of imperial Germany and the middle classes in the late 19th century. From there, she moved to a major study about what one would call today traumatized soldiers, traumatized German soldiers of the Second World War and how they coped with their violent pasts or maybe not cope with their violent pasts after 1945. And this won the prize for the best habilitation study of the German Historians Association in 2008. And it's also been translated, so it's available with University of Michigan Press since 2017 as The War in Their Minds, German Soldiers and Their Violent Pasts in West Germany. And the interesting thing about this book is that it is largely based on the archival study of psychiatric case files of soldiers. And it looks at the history of knowledge, but also the history of how media talked about psychic suffering of soldiers. And it looks at the actors themselves, the soldiers, the ex-soldiers and their families, and how they dealt with traumatic experiences from the past. Her most recent book was much discussed in Germany during the year of 2018. Again, won several prizes in 2018. It's a book about victims, and it will also be published in English next year with Oxford University Press under the title Victims, Perceptions of Suffering and Violence in Modern Europe. And that's a book that looks at the invention of different categories of victimhood and the concept of the passive victim over the 19th and 20th centuries. It also looks at the concept of trauma and at how different groups began to claim victimhood status and what this means for us today. Her talk today is a related topic, but it is in a way also a new topic because here she will be concentrating on the second half of the 20th century and 
on perceptions of interpersonal violence, so violence not from war settings, for example, but between people. And the lecture is titled Perceptions of Interpersonal Violence, a History of the Present. Thank you very much, Svenja, for joining us. We've been trying to get you for a while, so I'm very happy to be able to hand over to you now and to focus on your lecture. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for this kind introduction and for having me here to present and discuss my current research project. I Yes, my current research project now, which um, deals with changing conceptions of interpersonal violence in the course of the last 50 or maybe 60 years. Before I start, I have to admit that I'm not as far along with my research as I would like to be. And at the same time, it's also true that the further I go into the research, I find that this project could be a never-ending story. And I would like to make another brief preliminary remark. Considering the time available for the presentation, I have reduced the number of fields by which I wanted to explain my project. So I have structured the presentation as follows. First, I will explain the basic idea of my research project and outline my approach to the subject. And subsequently, I will turn to an important field of my project, namely the history of mobbing, respectively bullying, as we say in English, a history that has not yet been written. This focus allows me to be more concrete and to give you a better idea about the questions I'm interested in and the insights this project might offer. So, let me start by giving you a very brief idea of what this project is about. At the beginning of the 21st century, interpersonal violence is a phenomenon that has long since ceased to be captured only by crime statistics. And I'm talking, as Christina said, I'm talking here about violence beyond wars and political violence. This is evident from the many questionnaires and statistical surveys used by state authorities, international organizations, scientists from various disciplines and non-governmental organizations in their efforts to register a broad spectrum of different manifestations of violence. These publications not only monitor the development and various forms of physical violence in different social contexts, Rather, the concept of interpersonal violence also includes, among others, psychological or emotional abuse of women, the emotional neglect of children and the elderly, verbal aggression against women, children and minorities, and bullying in schools and the workplace. Also included in this context are attempts to address the abuse of children in state and religious institutions which started in the early 21st century. Today, these problems appear to have become frightfully ubiquitous. What is often overlooked, however, is that these surveys and studies are also the result of specific historical transformations. In Western Europe and beyond, since the last decades of the 20th century, our understanding of the concept of violence has shifted and broaden to include not only physical, but also mental, emotional, and verbal manifestations. This development is challenging in many ways. It affects notions of risk, safety, and health. 
It raises questions about the criminalization and prevention of these forms of violence. It affects both intimate relationships and the functioning of public space. And it changes the way people define themselves as subject in society. Well, as you all know, there are several studies from historical scholarship that have demonstrated that a stable understanding of violence does not exist. So far, this research concentrates predominantly on violence against women or children or against children, with the vast majority of studies extending at most to the early 20th century. To be sure, there are a few studies on the subject of corporal punishment or domestic violence dealing with the second half of the 20th century. I would like to mention above all Jennifer Crane's book on child protection in England, Joanna Burke's book on rape or Jane Friedland's research on the problematization of domestic violence in East and West Germany. Nevertheless, it is still true that these topics have been comparatively under-researched for the period since 1945, and this is especially the case when it comes to interpersonal violence in other fields and in a broader sense. Without any doubt, there are several reasons for this void in contemporary history. Certainly significant one is, however, that since the 1970s, social scientists have published an almost overwhelming number of studies on interpersonal violence from a wide variety of disciplines, including sociology, political science, criminology, psychology, and educational science. No doubt, this research has produced important findings on many questions related to different forms of violence. From my perspective, however, these studies are interesting primarily because since the late 1960s, they have been both indicators and drivers of the expansion of the concept of violence itself without recognizing their role in this fundamental historical transformation. This becomes evident in the fact that social scientists with social anthropologists being an exception, often treat violence as if we had a timeless and also unambiguous understanding of violence. The question these studies address is also quite specific. They are primarily concerned with understanding the causes of violence and evaluating ways to prevent violence. My point of departure and the perspective of my research project are completely different. Its central question is ultimately very simple, but has never been asked in this way before. Why has our understanding of violence, which nowadays goes far beyond physical violence, changed so fundamentally over the last decades and with what effects? Of course, this also includes the question about the social extent of this development and the exclusions it produces. My research project therefore aims at an epistemology of our understanding of violence, or perhaps I should use the plural form and speak of epistemologies, as there are several strands that need to be exposed and analyzed in this context. 
However, my basic assumption is that only by historicizing the concept of violence, whose expansion constitutes one of the most formative changes in Western Europe in the recent past, can we reveal the cultural, social, and political developments and even economic assumptions that propelled the transformation of this understanding, leading in turn to changes in society itself and producing new experiences of violence. Such an epistemology of violence necessarily includes the question of how changes in related and interdependent concepts such as suffering, injury, and aggression have driven transformations in conceptions of violence and vice versa. Overall, of course, this is a multi-layered process that was intertwined with larger political, scientific, and social trends that can be identified in Western Europe in the second half of the 20th century. I would like to touch briefly on some of these trends here, which occurred at the national level, but were also transnational in nature. The first shift I would like to address can be described as follows. What we can observe since the late 1950s is an increasing valorization of personal testimony and subjective experience. This phenomenon is linked, for example, with the emergence of subjective concepts of illness and the re-evaluation of one's own feelings within the framework of humanistic psychology. In this context, harmed persons were increasingly addressed as victims also, although this was not equally true across all social groups. And the perceptions and experiences of violence drew more and more interest. In this period, we can also observe that the attribution of being a victim is losing its derogatory weight, which it had carried with it until then, at least in the case of the living. In the era of law, testimony by victims took on greater importance, not merely to clarify factual circumstances, but also to assert the value of victims' own experiences. This becomes clear for the first time in the 1960s, but then especially since the 1980s. In this context, international developments also played a role driving for the implementation of victims' rights, including the right to individual victim compensation. My second point is, in the course of the second half of the 20th century, we can also observe that ideas about human vulnerability and psychological endurance have shifted considerably. To be precise, this process started in the 1950s when physicians in various European countries, not to mention the United States, were looking for new diagnostic tools for recording the long-lasting or late-onset mental suffering of former soldiers, survivors of national socialist persecution, and refugees. But of utmost importance was the new diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, taken up in 1980 by the American Classification System for Mental Disorders, the DSM-3, and in 1991 
by the diagnostic classification system ICD-10 for diseases and health-related problems. This diagnosis was based on the idea that any individual can develop long-term psychological problems if exposed to events outside the realm of human experience. In the years that followed, notions of trauma were interpreted ever more broadly and generated new expectations for ways of speaking about suffering. To give you just one example, since the 1990s, we can see that the shock caused by the visual has been given a new weight. After the 9-11 attacks in the US, psychiatrists even began to acknowledge that people who had only seen the attacks on TV could develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And finally, I would like to remind you that in the last third of the 20th century at the latest, we can identify another trend that can be described as a growing delegitimization of violence. In German, this change is reflected in semantic changes. During this period, the term Gewalt, violence, largely lost its positive connotation, protesters meaning power or faculty, and took on the almost exclusively negative connotation of violencia, aggressiveness. Symptomatic of this change, but also part of a much broader development, is the fact that many classical authors of social criticism, from Karl Marx to Walter Benjamin, Jean-Paul Sartre and Franz Fanon, used a positive definition of violence, while the negative associations slowly became stronger in the second half of the 20th century, linked to terms such as structural violence, Galtung, 1969, Symbolic Violence, Bourdieu and Passeron, 1970, and Epistemic Violence, Spivak, 1988. Michel Bibiorca described it in the following way. Since the 1980s, I quote, the intellectual and political zone where one encountered violence with sympathy, indeed openly, has become much smaller, end quote. Before I jump right into my case study, allow me to make three further comments on the research project as a whole, which I cannot go into in more detail now. First, in my research project, I will consider various social fields in which we encounter nowadays an understanding of violence that addresses more than physical injuries and thus differs significantly from the focus on physical violence that dominated until the 1960s. From my perspective, this approach is important as I assume that we are not dealing with isolated phenomena, but with a more fundamental cultural, social and political development. My research will likely include the more traditional research field of violence against women, or rather, I should probably frame this more openly as personal relationships, since the heteronormative view is problematic in this case. But apart from that, I will also pursue the question of how the notion that speech can be an act of violence came into being. 
This claim is far from self-evident and it has a relatively brief history. Even if after the Second World War, the human dignity of every person was nominally enhanced and increasingly protected by law, this was not necessarily associated with the idea of human vulnerability to harmful speech. And finally, workplace violence and thus a genealogy of bullying will also be part of the book that will be written at some point. I'll come back to this in a minute. Second, although I have a geographical focus on Western Europe in my project, my research will also examine how interpersonal violence has been problematized in different fields in the UN system. In particular, the World Health Organization and the International Labour Organization will be important. In this context, it is interesting to ask why and how certain concepts such as gender-based violence or work-related violence emerged and became central points of reference in Western Europe and with what effects. And this, of course, includes the question of why the problem of interpersonal violence, which was increasingly understood in a broad sense, received growing attention within the UN system and beyond. Just a hint, in 2002, the World Health Organization issued its World Report on Violence and Health, thereby clearly signaling that it had taken on a new policy area that is characterized as one of the largest global health problems, violence. The Western women's movement is often cited here as the crucial factor. It is certainly true that the feminist movement played a major role, but this explanation alone is unbalanced and insufficient. Apart from the fact that protagonists from the global South are often omitted in this context, I would argue that other developments or factors need to be considered as well. I can only touch on this here, but this includes, for example, that on the international level, interpersonal violence was linked to the issue of global health. The declaration of the World Conference on Women held in Beijing in 1995 is significant for emphasizing this connection between health and violence. In the 132-page-long document, the concept health occurs 219 times, although the ostensibly most urgent issue was HIV-AIDS, which is mentioned 33 times. There was also a reference to the most recent estimates by the World Health Organization, which assumed that by the year 2000, some 13 million women would be infected with the virus and 4 million would have died of AIDS. The International Labour Organization, in turn, which in the context of work had previously dealt only with physical violence, stated in 2002 that violence in the workplace, including psychological violence, I quote, has become a global problem crossing borders, work settings, and occupational groups, end quote. In addition, the organization refined the meaning of psychological violence 
with the help of a definition from the World Health Organization, which specified the intentional use of power as well as verbal abuse, bullying, mobbing, harassment, and threats. And finally, one can observe that since the mid 1980s, interpersonal violence has also increasingly been negotiated as an issue of economic costs. And third, in order to address the question of why notions of violence have shifted and expanded over the last half century, this research project clearly needs to look at very different societal actors. It is evident, for example, that social scientists are among them. But I would like to highlight another actor who still remains too often out of sight in contemporary history, especially in German history, and that is immigrants. This is not an easy task because even the more recent history of migration has so far only touched on the topic of interpersonal violence in passing. But why immigrants? Well, this is not only because they have become the object of investigation in the context of social science studies of violence, a fact which still has to be examined. Rather, the question of how immigrants, especially those of the second generation, have participated in the expansion of understandings of violence needs to be addressed in the first place. I am thinking here above all of the anti-racist critique of language which problematized speech as a form of violence. Migrants have also always been organized in the trade unions that problematized working conditions, including the exercise of psychological stress and unfair treatment in the workplace. And when exactly did racism, which after 1945 was seen at best as a precondition of violence, come to be seen itself as a form of violence? But for now, I would leave it at that, hoping that I could give you for the moment, a sufficient idea of this research project. Now I will go into more detail on the subject of bullying, respectively mobbing. Mobbing is how we refer to it in Sweden, Germany, and some other countries. In the following, I will stick to this term mobbing when talking about these countries, or I will use mobbing and bullying synonymously. At this point, I would like to mention at least three keywords that are essential for this history. Apartheid, aggression, labor conflicts. Let me start with an observation from the present day. News of incidents of bullying, mobbing are in the media every week these days, often involving incidents in schools or the workplace, but the allegations go far beyond these spaces. In addition, there are various websites on the internet where ministries, lawyers, school trade unions, or even psychologists explain how to recognize bullying and what the options are for defending oneself against it, if necessary, also by legal means. And if we look at the range of behaviors that are meant by mobbing, or bullying, it is extremely broad. It involves all kinds of physical or verbal actions that hurt, humiliate, 
or harass a person even if this was not the intention. Well, people have always been physically or verbally attacked. However, the way such behaviors have been perceived and categorized is historically variable. In this sense, mobbing, a term and phenomenon that we are so familiar with today, also has a history. Not only because physical acts such as beatings are perceived differently today compared to the 1960s, but the concept of mobbing as a way of describing and explaining discriminatory and hurtful behavior had to emerge and spread in the first place. Mobbing, or more precisely, the emergence and popularization of this concept has a complex history. If we examine this development more closely, which now spans 50 years, some significant shifts become apparent. An important strand of this history leads to Sweden, specifically to the year 1969, when the Jewish emigrant and physician Peter Paul Heinemann coined the term mobbing to conceptualize aggressive behavior among children. While the specific motivation to write this article, which appeared in the left liberal newspaper, Liberal Debat, was quite personal, Heilmann's concern was entirely political. This was already signaled by the title of the text, which was briefly entitled Apartheid. In this article, Heinemann delivered a powerful societal critique, denouncing behaviors that he saw as prerequisites for apartheid systems and more widespread hidden forms of apartheid, including in Sweden. I quote, apartheid is isolation, abandonment, lack of contact, exclusion, displacement, outsiderness, segregation. And he went on saying, I quote again, it is a deadly disease if left untreated. We are not immune. We are in a preliminary stage. We don't know how to treat it. Two experiences were crucial for Heinemann's intervention. On the one hand, his own discrimination, which he had experienced as a child in Nazi Germany, and on the other hand, the humiliations and exclusions suffered by his adopted son, who was of color, which he now also witnessed in Sweden. You can see both on the slide on the right side. To describe these behaviors, Heinemann referred to the term mobbing, which was introduced by ethologist Konrad Lorenz in his book on aggressions in 1966. The German version was published in 1963. To describe groups of animals that attack their real or perceived predators. You can see a small picture of Konrad Lorenz on the left side in this article. Heinemann considered pogroms and lynch mobs to be equivalent, but above all, he indicated that people already began to mob as children. For this very reason, he regarded this as an opportunity to take action. To be sure, following Lorenz, he considered mobbing by children who pounced on individuals in groups to be a specific and natural behavior. 
According to him, children in urban suburbs and large schools were particularly at risk. But he also shared Lorenz's conviction that aggression would not necessarily manifest itself in violence, but could be positively redirected. Heinemann's urgent appeal to educators and parents was therefore to stop viewing violence and bullying as benign camaraderie building or even as will enhancing, but to regulate them to the place of maximum forbidden things to which they belonged. Today, Peter Paul Heinemann's name often comes up when the origins of the concept of mobbing are discussed in scientific or popular science publications. His political concern, however, is no longer present. During the early debate on mobbing that followed Heinemann's article, the situation was temporarily different. At least initially, the debate centered on children from immigrant families who suffered particularly from mobbing, understood as group violence against deviance. In this context, the Swedish Board of Education also suggested measures to educate students about the disparaging nature of various expressions such as gypsy pack or schacherjude, which were widely used in everyday life. However, other voices were soon raised in popular talk about mobbing, which no longer saw discriminatory, disparaging behavior as the primary problem of foreigners or gypsies, as they called it. In short, parents supported by children's testimony claimed that mobbing could affect any child who exhibited any form of otherness as an individual. Studies by the Swedish psychologist and aggression researcher Dan Olveus, who made his voice heard in the debate in the early 1970s and still ranks among the leading figures in scientific bullying research today, served to accentuate the individualization of bullying even more. To be sure, Olveus took up the term mobbing because it had become so common in Scandinavia through public discussion. But his focus was less on the group than Heinemann's had been. Based on his previous research, Olveus assumed that aggressiveness depended on specific personality traits. Thus, it was the psychological disposition of the individual involved that clearly came to the fore as an explanation. Above all, however, mobbing was no longer a phenomenon that was situated in a context with xenophobia and racism and called for them to be problematized. The tendency to individualize mobbing remained, even if the debate about the scope of the phenomenon, its forms of expression, causes and possibilities of prevention shifted several times in the course of the coming decades. It is not always immediately apparent, however, that the problematization of bullying or mobbing often continued to revolve around eminently political issues. In the 1970s, for example, this included criticism of the increase in women's employment, which, as Olveus and some others thought at the time, 
led to the neglect of children and, as a consequence, to unbridled aggression and bullying. Furthermore, the introduction of innovative concepts of education was blamed by its critics for the fact that children could give free rein to their aggressiveness and that even in cases of physical violence, there was far too little intervention. If we look at Great Britain in the 1970s and 1980s, it becomes even clearer that the fight against bullying could be motivated in very different ways and that its advocates were also to be found in the conservative camp. The conservative tabloid Daily Mail reported for years both consistently and extensively on children and young people who physically attacked classmates, blackmailed them, humiliated them, and made their lives hell. The newspaper opened its columns to testimonials from parents and children who reported on the vile practices of bullying and the suffering experienced by their sons and daughters. Other articles affirmed that pupils would not stop at teachers with their physical attacks. The Daily Mail's credo was clear. There was an urgent need to put a halt to the violence in schools that was allegedly causing physical and psychological harm to hundreds of thousands of children and young people. The Daily Mail focused on strengthening authority and discipline. By the late 1980s, it left no doubt that it considered corporal punishment, including the use of the cane, an appropriate and defensible measure in this context. To denounce bullying by no means necessarily excluded advocating the use of force. As is well known, mobilization against bullying is no longer limited to the school sector. Studies by the Swedish occupational psychologist Heinz Lehmann, which have been published in Swedish since the mid-1980s and later in other languages, played an important role in this, especially since Lehmann addressed a non-scientific audience early on and also reached outside Sweden. Lehmann also became known beyond academia in the German-speaking world with his little guidebook, Mobbing, Psychological Terror in the Workplace and How to Defend Yourself Against It. It was first published in German in 1992. Since then, it has been reprinted several times. The broad reception of the book, however, not only made the author known, but also the term mobbing entered the German language in the first place. Since then, public discussion of mobbing at work, still called bullying in English publications, has expanded considerably in many countries of the global north. There are many reasons for this, including the growing number of scientific studies, especially in the field of industrial and organizational psychology, regulations by political bodies at the national and international level, funding for large-scale surveys and new legal provisions in the field of occupational health and safety that also affect employers' duty of care. 
The complaints about mobbing at the workplace have nevertheless not decreased, but on the contrary have further increased during the past three decades, remains largely unreflected. This is even more true for the question whether talking about bullying has a political dimension, or rather, which political expectations and goals come into play in the fight against bullying and mobbing. At present, this question is extremely difficult to answer. This question, however, comes to mind when we go back in the historical analysis of industrial relations to the United Kingdom of the 1970s and 1980s, a period in which talk about bullies and bullying was already present. At the time, it was the conservative Daily Mail, among others, that systematically fueled the fight against unions by accusing union members who harassed and intimidated strike breakers of bullying and labeling them as bullies because of their methods. Thus, the discrediting of bullying followed a political agenda consistent with the busting of unions under Thatcher. By the mid-1990s, the wind was shifting. Even for the Daily Mail, the addressee had now changed. It targeted employers or bosses, and it drew on recent polls. Attacked now were the bully bosses, who constantly criticized the employees or overloaded them with work. Reign of terror by office bullies was now one of the typical headlines above an article that asserted that bullying in the workplace had reached epidemic proportions. What appears at first glance to be a turnaround, however, reveals itself on second glance to be a curious form of continuity. To be sure, the Daily Mail also expressed concern for workers and employees who were in poor health and suffered from low self-esteem. But the Daily Mail was at least as concerned about the immense economic damage that would result from bullying. At the bottom of the slide on the right side, you see a representative of many others, a quote from the Daily Mail that states, and I quote, statistics indicated that around 6 million people had been subjected to direct verbal abuse in the workplace over the last five years. The resulting stress and low morale the academics suggested could be manifesting itself in as many as 18 million working days a year being lost through absenteeism, end quote. In fact, in many institutions, uh, problematization of mobbing has since become almost inconceivable without reference to the immense economic damage. This is true for international organizations and national actors alike who have meanwhile undertaken various efforts to measure the individual, social and economic damage of bullying. Compared to the concern expressed by the Swede Peter Paul Heinemann in 1969, this is a remarkable shift. This is not only the case because bullying is now taken much more seriously in many countries and preventive measures to protect against bullying have been launched and sanctions established accordingly. What is most striking, however, is that along with the individualization of bullying, which was accompanied by an expansion of its concept, 
the racially motivated discrimination was removed from the understanding of bullying for decades. In other words, in recent decades, the concept of bullying has been predominantly characterized by a blank space that may be called a racist blind spot. In most Western European countries, it is only in recent years that we can observe that this is changing again. Given the time, I would like to leave it at that, even if this only opens a first insight into the history of the concept of bullying, which belongs to the broader history about the changing notion of violence. I think it goes without saying that my brief excursion to Sweden and Great Britain are not meant to stand as paradigmatic examples of a homogeneous development in Europe. A systematic comparison would of course clearly show the specific histories and the different pace in the countries concerned. In the end, however, it is remarkable that all countries have in common that at the end of the 20th century, all of them are characterized by an understanding of violence that has clearly expanded compared to the 1960s. Psychological violence, emotional violence, verbal violence are no longer foreign words, rather they have become a language for new experiences. I hope I have been able to demonstrate that this history of changing notions of violence is remarkably complex and multifaceted. Neither is it a linear uniform history, nor is it a simple history of progress. Nor will it do justice if we interpret that history simply as one of increasing sensitivity. Although it is certainly true that notions of vulnerability have changed markedly over the last half century. As the brief example of bullying alone shows, the increasing attention to certain forms of violence did not necessarily exclude the simultaneous demand for physical punishment. I would like to emphasize, however, that this was only one voice among others. But if we look at Sweden today, we see that while there is no call for corporal punishment, which is an absolute taboo in Scandinavia, the threshold for criminalizing bullying, even in a school context, has dropped significantly. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that the attention paid to various acts of violence, at least in some contexts, is linked to a development that I will tentatively call the economization of violence. As I have already indicated, this trend can be observed since the end of the 20th century in various organizations at the national and international levels. This development is closely linked to changing ideas about the limits of human stress, but what intentions this has entailed is as yet completely in the dark. What is certain is that the topic of resilience enhancement has also been booming since the turn of the century. The focus is thus particularly on the individual. I hope I have shown in my lecture that this is not only about culture, but also about politics. And that really brings me to the end. And 
as you could see, my research project as a whole is still very much under construction. And for this reason, I'm very much looking forward to the discussion, your questions, comments, and ideas. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Svenja.